Hello, and welcome to Talking Pharmacy Live, coming to you from the Sigma Conference in the Dominican Republic. Brilliant, lively crowd. I'm joined as usual by Rob Darracott, Arthur Walsh, and Neil Trainis to discuss some of the big pharmacy issues on the agenda at this year's conference. Our delegates have selected some hot topics for us to debate. And the first one is this panel. The demise of the multiples. Good news or bad for pharmacy? Who wants to tackle this first? Neil? You're nearest to me. Neil edits the independent community pharmacist, as Hattel said, so you might have a, a view on this. Good news or bad news? The demise of the multiples, Neil. It's uh, absolutely fantastic news. Um, <laughs> I think um, our esteemed uh, colleague Barrett Shaw once described independence as the lifeblood of pharmacy, and I totally and utterly agree with him. They certainly are. Um, it's, uh, I mean, community pharmacy in general, we want to see it thrive as, as a network, of course we do. Um, so it's been pretty uh, disconcerting to see the situation with Lloyd's Pharmacy and uh, certain branches of Boots uh, and some of the multiple struggling Tesco's, I think. So that has, yeah, that's been a, a, that's not been great. You want community pharmacy as a whole to, to thrive, of course you do. But independents are the, right at the heart of their communities. And uh, you, you know, um, you don't get the first name terms, uh, relationship with a multiple that you do with your trusty independent. The government just doesn't, I mean, don't get me started. How long have we got, Richard? I could talk about the government for the next four hours, actually, and tear into them if, if we could. But, no, uh, keep it short. <laughs> they don't get it. They don't get uh, pharmacy, and they certainly don't get independence. Um, and uh, what they need to do is start putting some money into uh, independent pharmacy, because those people right on the periphery of society, I'm talking about the homeless, uh, drug addicts, uh, people struggling with mental health issues, and, and so on, you know, there's no sector, no healthcare sector in the NHS, period, better to serve those people and reach those people than independent pharmacies. They are uh, the, the one sec part of this NHS that needs to be valued and the government needs to wake up. Good stuff. Arthur, would, uh, would you agree? Oh, the, the multiples are the backbone of the network, aren't they, with their national distribution? Are they just easy to knock? Uh, I mean, I don't think they've got to the scale they are by accident. I think there's possibly a lot to be said for, for having business, businesses of that scale. But maybe now it's particularly unhelpful to be owned by, effectively owned by shareholders who are scrutinizing targets X, Y, Z, and maybe not as interested in investing in other, other parts of the business. It's, uh, it's a tough, I mean, it's definitely, it, it, it is looking like it's more of a time for, for, for the smaller, so, or small to mid operators. It'd be interesting to see how the next few years play out. Rob, you've um, done some work, obviously, with the CCA. You led the CCA for, for, for many years. Um, multiples are struggling with costs and rising costs and declining income like everyone else. I mean, the decline, is that good news for pharmacy, really? I, I, I think it's, it's good in one way. I think it's not so good in another. I do the not so good first. I think that um, one of the one of the things that multiples have uh, proven to be reasonably good at in the past is uh, making things happen at scale. And I think that's not to be underestimated at a time when uh, it appears from the conversation we heard this morning that the NHS is actually fundamentally interested in slightly different things uh, and uh, the clinical role. 
And so uh, whatever transpires with the, the current challenges for multiples, community pharmacy as a whole has to think through how it implements things at scale. Um, on, the, on the positive side, I, I very much share Neil's view. I think that independents uh, historically have shown themselves to be in the forefront of innovation um, and some of the other words that we heard from the chief pharmacist this morning, neighborhood, community, and the potential opportunities that are going to only exist in some cases at a very local level, I think play to independent community pharmacist strengths. Now there are some challenges in that, in, in, in working more collaboratively together at a local level. But I think that has always been the case. Um, I think we can make an awful lot of the divisions between pharmacies and the aspects of competition. Um, but historically, community pharmacies have worked together. And I think if there are opportunities for them to do so in the past to deal with uh, and provide support to a specific group within a community or a neighborhood, then I think there are some upsides there. And I think the independent sector is well-placed, better placed to maximize the value of that. And certainly one of the challenges for multiples and particularly national multiples is when you're dealing with the way it's 42 um, integrated care systems across England, or whether you're dealing with the myriad numbers of primary care networks, it's hard work if you've got a head office wherever it is um, and you've got, you're relying on managers to deliver services at a local level. Uh, so the bigger you are, the harder it is, and the smaller that you are, potentially the easier it is. Okay, good stuff. Thanks, Rob. Um, thank you as well, delegates, uh, for some of your comments, which are, are coming in through Slido. Um, one person, anonymous, says, uh, what is wrong with Welsh rugby? Well. We haven't got long enough to, to say what's wrong with Welsh rugby. Um, another comment, um, a bit more serious, this one, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Why can't we all get behind one leader? And by that, I guess, in multiples and independence. Um, now, Hemant, who's on after us. And Hemant, I'll, I'll, I'll come to you, if I may. Um, Hemant has asked, I'll come find you with the mic, Hemant. Um, why do you think there has been a standoff between PSNC and the NHS, um, what could be done to improve the alignment between these two key players affecting community pharmacy? So, where are you, Hemant? Right, I'm gonna to come to Hemant quickly for a few comments about that, and then we're gonna to come to the panel. So, I'm gonna run and find you, Hemant. Oh, I'm doing a Michael Bacter. So this is about PSNC. That's what's wrong with Welsh rugby, look, not quick enough. Not quick enough, you're so rude. What did, just elaborate on that very briefly, Hemant, and we'll see what the, the panel think. Yes, I think uh, the NHS is evolving and has been evolving for quite some time. Uh, and it seems to me that PSNC has been uh, at war with uh, NHS and vice versa. And I think the price is paid for by the contractors. And it seems to me that there is no alignment between the objectives of PSNC and NHS. And someone has to give, otherwise we're gonna have a situation where last man standing situation will develop very quickly. 
Okay, so that's Hemant looking at multiples and independents all in the same boat, which is true, isn't it? Can't get a run again. Um, and PSNC has to represent anyone. So I think on balance, good news or bad news? I don't think it's healthy, but it's definitely a factor, isn't it? With the multiples beginning to, to pull out of the market in some numbers, bed by Lloyd's Pharmacy. So the dynamics of the market, as we saw uh, from Leila's slide, beginning to change. Right, let's move on. Um, next topic. I'll do, yeah, professional leadership. This is interesting. Um, Professor David Taylor mentioned it, didn't he, about the, um, the leadership commission, um, which you, you will have read about. Um, we're going to, they want, or we're going to set up a co coherent, federated, UK-wide professional leadership framework with strong governance and a transitional collaborative pharmacy leadership council is going to be established. This will utterly transform the leadership of the profession. So this is quite dramatic stuff. But Rob, let's, let's talk with you. You've, you start with you. You've written a lot about professional leadership. Is this just another talking shop? And what is important about professional leadership now? Uh, no, it's not just another talking shop. I think it might look like that, and I think you'd make a mistake in thinking that we need to argue about who's sitting around the table and not thinking about the purpose. There's clearly something um, seen as seriously wrong if four national chief officers, and yeah, they are all employed by the government, decide that the professional leadership in, this, in the profession, I'm not talking about a sector, the profession, is a problem, and it's not up to its job. Um, and setting up a, a commission. It, it's fascinating how one professional leadership body in particular viewed the commission. They thought it was a good idea rather than an incredible criticism of their performance over the last decade or so. Um, why does it matter? I think it matters because professional leadership bodies, whether they're in pharmacy or whether they're in medicine or nursing or any of the other professions, including those outside healthcare, tend to be about a number of things. They tend to be interested in and uh, developing and pushing forward on professional standards, basic education and training, fostering research and innovation, defining roles. We may get onto the subject of supervision. Can anybody in this room tell me what the professional leadership body for pharmacy thinks a pharmacist's role is, let alone a pharmacy technician's role. You look at dentistry, I think there are lots of professions working in dentistry these days. I think they have a very clear sense of the role of a dental hygienist, a dental technician, a dentist, dental surgeon, etc., etc. Um, I could go on. They foster and share good practice, uh, and they also communicate with a wide range of audiences to promote understanding and confidence. And whether we like it or not, the professional leadership body for pharmacists in Great Britain has been around for 180 years. When it started, it looked a bit like a gentleman's club, and in some ways it was. But those pharmacists from London who got together and said, we want to define ourselves as pharmacists, not barefoot doctors, another question about that we might come to. 
We don't want to be beholden to the medical profession. We do things which are distinct and separate. And those of us in this pub on the Strand, the Crown and Anchor, which no longer exists, we think we're better than a lot of other people who are applying their trade, doing the sort of things we do. And we're going to set up an association and we're going to fight for our rights. And they went to Parliament. One of them, Jacob Bell, you may have heard of him, got himself elected to Parliament, a member of Parliament for St Albans. He did his job while he was there. He got a law which started to define pharmacy in the law of the land. And then he got thrown out of Parliament because he was a rotten borough and he had to pay people to get elected. He didn't quite go to jail. But people have fought for rights for the profession over the years. They've done it throughout the, the 19th century. Uh, you heard from David Taylor earlier on about the, the run-up to 1911. The 1933 Act is absolutely seminal. And then through the 50s and 60s, we moved away from apprentice profession to one with degree entry. And over the years, those predecessors, um, the wise men and women of the profession who fought for all those rights, they built something else. They built authority. They built credibility. They built expertise. And out of all of that, you get influence. And that's why it's important. And that's why, bizarrely, you might think, why on earth would government chief officers want a professional leadership um, thing in pharmacy that was influential? Because it has to be for, for all of us, and whether we like it or not. I did some work, uh, do you remember 15 years ago, sorry this is rather long Richard, do you remember um, 15 years ago when the MHRA tried to get rid of pseudoephedrine and put it back on prescription? And uh, there was a coalition of the willing to try and prevent that happening because we wanted to keep it as a pharmacy medicine. It didn't matter whether it was trade bodies or manufacturers or even public representatives who were part of the coalition to try and keep pseudoephedrine as a P-medicine. The, medicines commission, the Commission on Human Medicines wanted to hear from the RPS because they're the professional leadership body and they, over those years, had demonstrated authority, credibility and influence. Um, and I think the last thing to just to round it off and to top and tell where we are now with where we started in 1841, um, those pharmacists who met in the Crown and Anchor on the Strand had two key things in mind when they created what is now the RPS, and it's been through many generations of, of organizations since, is that they wanted to celebrate and define expertise in pharmacy exercised in the public interest, uh, and they wanted to bottom out and develop the science of medicines. Um, and those two things are as important for other professional leadership bodies um, across healthcare as they are for pharmacy. Okay, Arthur, just before we, we come to you, just reading some comments uh, from delegates here. Um, we've got quite a few, actually. I'll just feed it into the discussions. Uh, one person, do you think that the current leadership of the profession is fit for purpose? Um, well, I guess because we've got the commission, the answer is it, it, it isn't. Um, second, what's the role for the NPA? There doesn't seem to be a strategy for independence. Not sure if, if Andrew's in. He might want to address that today or tomorrow. Um, this is, a, are the divisive politics within the sector preventing solid professional leadership? 
Um, do you feel professional leaders are independent to represent the profession or influenced by the government with their agenda? So that's interesting. Arthur, what, what are your thoughts on, on the professional leadership and where, where we've reached with the commission? I mean, uh, I mean, there's definitely a lot of uh, awkward stories for the RPS last year that kind of didn't show the, the leadership in the, in the best of lights. And um, it was interesting, uh, I've spoken to a few people about uh, Janet Morrison's from, from PSNC's her talk yesterday, which it was a great talk, but um, a few people noted how little overlap there was between what she was talking about and what David Webb was talking about in his address this morning. And I mean, I'm not sure if it's fair to expect the PSNC to, to guide um, uh, the profession or the sector through the kind of uh, changes that through all of the changes that Webb was talking about so but probably that shows that there is a gap for 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 someone to just really take charge of, of, of these issues on a on a national scale still um, I but also there's it might be a little bit awkward like with the because um, the RPS and after they're kind of optional membership bodies that you pay a fee for I'm not sure how exactly that fits with the idea of a, of a national council so Still questions about that, but um, I think it's uh, there's definitely uh, a lot of scope to to overhaul the, the the leadership that we have. Okay, Neil, let's just wrap this particular subject up. Um, we're doing not too bad for time. Look, we, the RPS has got mentioned several times. It's the elephant in the room, really. Is the the RPS's slightly checkered history since the split directly responsible for the profession's lack of progress? Well, when you look at professional leadership, I'm afraid it's the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, isn't it? And it's a really bad moment for the RPS. It's an appalling moment for the RPS, and it's a critical moment. Um, I'm, I'm quite torn. I was quite torn when the UK Commission for Professional Leadership was set up, and Nigel Clark chaired it. I, I was torn because I thought to myself, you know, whatever they come up with, the RPS, are they bound to abide by what they say or what, or what recommendations they come up with. This, this council that's just been uh, um, announced, you know, whoever chairs it, whenever, it's, whenever it gets going. But the RPS, at the end of the day, are not bound by anyone, except their members, of course. Uh, the members do matter, but the, the RPS can ignore, technically, whatever the UK Commission come up with. Um, the other thing about the UK Commission um, and its findings, I thought it was a, a missed opportunity because what the Commission failed to do, in my view, was actually you know, have a real investigation, a proper exploration as to why the RPS has failed so spectacularly, spectacularly over the last 12, 13 years. Um, and that would have entailed, as, as painful as it may well have been, it would have in, had to have entailed identifying individuals within the organisation and why they failed so miserably. And it just failed to do that. So I'm not really sure where this commission goes in terms of whatever it comes up with, the council, the RPS at the end of the day is a law, a law unto itself, I'm afraid. Okay, good stuff, strong words. Just out of interest, and generally not mischief-making, out of the, the contractors here, how many are members of the RPS? Could you, could you raise your hand? Okay, that's actually a good number, to be fair. Uh, oh, quick, uh, an input comment from, from Ian, Ian Strachan over there. Uh, former NPA chair, of course. I think referring to the, the comment about the NPA leadership, uh, Ian says, we had the chance to transform, but the board 
wouldn't rise to the challenge. Is that right, Ian? Yeah. Um, and that came from a, from a previous CPO. Um, another comment, we need a strong voice, but not views from several bodies. Okay. Um, well, we'll see what, what the Leadership Commission comes up with. We've just got time for one more subject. Pharmacists are becoming doctors on the cheap. Now, this was an interesting. Do you remember this came? This was on the back of the controversial comments uh, made by the, the Royal College of GPs chair, uh, Camilla Hawthorne. Um, and we do seem to have reached a position where pharmacy taking the, lead, the, the, the pressure of GPs is all very well, but. Are we undervaluing the role of pharmacists themselves here in pharmacy teams? Um, the roles are not the same, are they? Pharmacists have got a unique skill set with medicines and, and, and patient safety and work collaboratively to improve care. And I just wonder whether you're seeing uh, a transfer of responsibilities that GPs just don't want to do anymore, um, like blood pressure checks, for example, or earmarks removal. Um, so yes, relieve, relieving demand of hard-pressed GPs is, is all very well, but is this missing the point of pharmacists' unique role, providing that pharmacists, of course, work within their competencies? So Neil, let's go back down the line then just to finish. Are pharmacists turning into GPs on the cheap? Well, the, the, the quick one, the first thing to say is uh, the, the chap you mentioned at the, the head of the, the Royal College of GPs. GPs, wasn't it? Yeah, we've heard some rather disconcerting comments from people right at the top of general practice recently. I think there was another ridiculous comment about independent pharmacy prescribing fragmenting primary care from another uh, leading GGP, which is, we all know in this room, utterly ridiculous comment. Um, I'm not sure we should take too much notice of what these uh, individuals are saying. Um, I think it's more important that uh, pharmacists are not seen as doctors' dog, dogs' bodies. Personally, um, you know, I, I, I don't know about find out what Arthur and Rob think, but I, I'm I'm not a fan of the uh, the GP pharmacy program that was launched by Nation. I've never been a fan of it. I think that uh, you know, pharmacy, the best pharmacy care is out in the community. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, where pharma community pharmacies can reach those hard-to-reach people not being stuck in a GP surgery, being told what to do by, by doctors. Um, and I, and I, I think it's really important that uh, NHS England um, start putting money in, into, into areas where it's going to have a, a telling impact, not, not throwing money at, uh, at, at, at surgeries. And I'd like to see NHS England um, actually, you know, have a rethink about the additional roles reimbursement scheme um, and any other funding they're throwing at general practice to sort of, hang on a minute, let's divert some of that money to independence because the workforce shortage doesn't just affect general practice, it's affecting community pharmacy. So let's, let's, let's have NHS England throwing some resources back towards independent pharmacy. So I'd like to see uh, a, a fresh attitude from NHS England uh, towards our independent community pharmacies. Who would disagree with that? Um, Arthur, quite, quite quickly, what do you think about this? No, I, th I think, I think pharm pharmacists have their own kind of uh, area of practice that's expanding, but that, that doesn't mean that they're just um, becoming a, a carbon copy or a cheaper version of GPs. Um, I, have, I have heard this, the, the uh, doctor on the cheap uh, line used also in relation to um, statistics that the PSNC put out in terms of pharmacist services are kind of you know, they, they, they can cost like less to the NHS ultimately, and that this isn't the um, the line that the profession should be taking to, to negotiations. I think that's uh, 
possibly a fair point, but I think it's also kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't for, for PSNC because they have to, to cost things and, and prevent a, a fully costed case to, to whoever they're, they're negotiating with. But um, yeah, no, to answer the question, no, I don't think they're doctors on the cheap. Okay, Rob, just to finish. 30, 30, seconds, 30 seconds, Richard. The, the short answer to the question is no, as long as uh, we don't lose sight of the uh, particular specialist knowledge and skills that um, makes up a pharmacist. And um, the last thought I'd leave you with is I think when uh, the NHS started investing in medicines optimization, whether we like the phrase or not, I think those two words were very, very carefully chosen. And that is the province of, for pharmacists. Um, and as long as we don't go too far from the medicines, then we can keep this very distinct from what doctors do. Fantastic. And we're finishing just about on time. Um, just finally, I'll just read some, some last comments coming from, uh, from the audience. You've been um, really engaged, which is fantastic. Uh, message, Andrew, Andrew Lane, um, NPA chair. Um, happy to address any NPA questions in, in Andrew's session tomorrow. So uh, make sure you come for that. This from um, Deborah Evans, just a good, some really good points Deborah makes. <clears throat> this is about the doctors on the cheap thing. Is this not about having the right person doing the right thing with the right skills at the appropriate moment? And with resources under massive strain, we have to work together to ensure that we all add value. That might be prescribing, but medicine's optimization is our USP. Uh, we should be embracing any clinical development opportunity. We cannot stand still, otherwise we will become obsolete. And there was one comment, which Slido, one more, <laughs> a bit naughty, uh, or maybe not, pharmacy technicians are actually becoming pharmacists on the cheap. So we could have a, a whole discussion about workforce, but we're out of time. And let's wrap it up there. Uh, my thanks to Rob, Neil and Arthur and all the delegates for being so engaged. All the Talking Pharmacy podcasts are available on Pharmacy Magazine website, pharmacymagazine.co.uk or your usual podcast provider. I'm Richard Thomas and you've been listening to Talking Pharmacy Live.